Yeah. Well, yeah. We sell crack to our own out the back of our homes. We smell the musk of the dusk and the crack of the dawn. We go through episodes too, like Attack of the Clones. What till we break a bag and you hear the crack of the bone to get by? Just to get by, just to get by, just to get by. We commute to computers, spirits stay mute while your ego spread rumors. We survivalists turn to consumers. Just to get by, uh. just to get by, just to get by, just to get by. Ask why some people gotta live in the trailer, cause like a sailor, I paint a picture. You wanna listen to the rest of that song, don't you? And you're frustrated because because now the song is over and we're gonna have to do the lecture. And and you are right to feel all those things. That was Talib Kweli with a song called Get By, and definitely worth checking out the lyrics. We're checking out Talib Kweli that comes from an album called Quality from 2002, which I guess makes it old school now. But yes, definite humanistic under and overtones lyrics to that song, so I encourage you to check it out. Need to make a note before we jump in here to what I am calling Lecture 12, but your notes call it Lecture 11. This is in the, the notes that I provided. It's actually the very last um, lecture, so it should be easy to find. Just go to the end. We're going to start off today talking about humanistic psychology and the psychology of moral development. And it should be largely review, so I'm going to go along at a little bit of a faster clip, but then I'll slow back down again when we start talking about cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence. So after a century of this, this emphasis on behavior, what's empirical, um, psychophysics, assessment, um, the shape of people's heads and magnetism, and all this stuff, we start to get a needed move toward a more phenomenological psychology. And one of the key things in this is that individual differences in these uniquely human phenomena become more important not only in the scientific study of psychology, but to the public. This, during this time period in the 20th century, you have, because in the West, because of, of public education, uh, which is that's its own story with its own interesting uh, pieces of psychology to it. But you have public education uh, for the first time. And so you have more people who are literate and you have news- newspaper publishing. You have, you have printing presses, not, not the old ones, but the big ones now. That you, so you can mass produce these newspapers. So the public is becoming more educated and the public is becoming interested in a wider range uh, of topics and psychology was one of them. And when they read about psychology, they weren't curious about uh, sensory thresholds. Um, you know, lay per- when lay people think of psychology, they don't think of psychophysics. They don't think about behaviorism. They think of things like self-esteem, feelings, and existential questions about what it means to be a human, uh, what it means to die. And in the United States, this first really manifests in terms of a theoretical orientation and a philosophy in humanistic psychology. So humanistic psychology emerges in the 1950s and focuses on sort of becoming and being human instead of just what's the structure of psychology or what is the function of psychology. And so it's frequently frequently referred to as third force in psychology because the first force being considered behaviorism and the second force being considered psychoanalysis. 
So the folks in humanistic psychology had two goals when they began in order to be considered a legitimate subdiscipline of psychology. The first, as always, is to establish a professional organization. And you've got these, these key figures like Maslow, Moustakis, uh, and of course Carl Rogers starting off. And in 1963, they have their first meeting of the Association for Humanistic Psychology. The Association of Humanistic Psychology doesn't exist anymore because guess what happened to it? If you've been paying any attention to this course at all, you know that it becomes a division of the APA. If you can't beat them, join them. It seems to be um, uh, <laughs> almost an algorithm, at least a heuristic. I'll talk about that in a second, but it's, it always happens. So some key points in humanistic psychology, and again, this should all really be reviewed. A human being should be viewed from a holistic perspective. Human beings are conscious and have the capacity for expanding consciousness. The human experience is unique and not fully determined by environmental factors, context, or culture. Rational human beings are free to make choices. They are not limited by deterministic reinforcements, punishment, or unconscious. It shouldn't be unconscious choices that I have there in the notes. It should be unconscious motivations, really. And human behavior is goal-directed, and people are generally aware of the, con of the consequences. So think about how different this is than, than everything that we've been talking about in psychology uh, up to this point. And, you know, we've had basically behaviorism and psychoanalysis have, have held the day, and then experimental psychology is, is doing its own thing, and largely in the area of psychophysics. But then... Humanistic psychology comes along and says, mm, we're interested in things that, that really stimulate us, that get us excited as people, the reasons that we live, these bigger questions. Psychology has always been reductionist in, in one way or another. It's had a tendency towards that. We're going to break this down. We're going to diagnose this. We're going to look at the, the parts of this. We're going to look at the variables here. And to be clear, psychology needs to keep doing that. that that's important work. Humanistic psychology says we're going to look at something that's more holistic, that's more uniquely human, and in contrast to a lot of other models and approaches to psychology, we're going to say that human beings are actually different than animals, and we want to find out how. Now, as you've probably heard me say before in at least one other class, humanism is the flashy American cousin of existentialism and existential psychology. Um, existentialism is, is very, even though there, there are American existentialists, and I'll mention one in a second, existentialism is very European. Humanism is really very American, though there are certainly plenty of European humanists. And you sort of, you sort of think about it like this, you know, in the world wars, the American experience was, I, I mean, it, I, I'm reluctant to use the word positive uh, about a war. It certainly wasn't. There was loss, just like the, there always is in war. But in World War I and World War II, you got, the United States, while people certainly died, there weren't, no battles were fought in the United States. We got bombed at Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, but even that, I think, for a lot of Americans, because it's, you know, it was out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, felt distant. Um, so you don't get, and then the wars, both wars, economically helped the United States because there was all this manufacturing, 
um, and all these these technologies that were created and and so forth and then the GI Bill sent all of these guys coming home to college and then but you know and then you get the baby boomer generation after that so in the United States it's like life is good <laughs> we have reasons to be optimistic meanwhile in Europe um, and Russia everybody's gotten bombed to crap their cities are in rubble all the the, the, na the countries are just financially just dead and so you can see then why this idea that you know what life really has no purpose when you've lived through mustard gas and concentration camps um, and your economy is anything but booming and you've had all of these horrible things happen in your own backyard it's easy to see why the europeans were more hey life's kind of they're saying that life has an ultimate purpose um is not true and this actually this idea actually developed because and this is a good point to kind of return to the notes now. Soren Kierkegaard, certainly you've heard his name in some class at Fuller at some point. Everybody loves Soren Kierkegaard, I think. Um, he's regarded as the father of existential philosophy, um, but he, and he's a Christian. And so that's where actually, and, and this is, gets lost in discussions of existentialism, historically existentialism begins as, as theistic. Um, and so Kierkegaard conceives of this phenomenological approach to human beings um, that stated that humans are difficult to categorize and largely make their own meaning out of life. And this is a much more optimistic than the atheistic sort of agnostic psychology that was to follow, even though Kierkegaard himself was very depressed. And that's, that's a whole other story. His own story is very sad. So you can even, even though Kierkegaard's existentialism relative to other forms of existentialism is considered positive, if you think about it in contrast to other theologies of the day, which is really, that's what it is, is you're comparing theologies. This is one of the reasons that in integration pe people love Kierkegaard so much because he's so amenable to integrative discussions and ideas. But he's saying that, that we have to create our own meaning and it's not supplied by God. That was still pretty revolutionary and relatively dark um, at the time. Heidegger comes along 19th, 20th century and to, to build on his work was in the 20th century, sorry, Heidegger, 20th century existentialist, born in 19th century. Um, but he builds on Kierkegaard's ideas and lays the foundations for existential philosophy. But this philosophy really, again, at World War I, World War II, takes a darker turn. Um, and the World Wars had a huge effect on Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp, and that's all I'm gonna say about that because you have learned everything to know about Viktor Frankl in this program by now, probably. <laughs> no, I doubt it, but you know what I mean. Rollo May is someone I first encountered in college when I took um, a pastoral counseling class. And he was in the, and this was, this was in the late 80s, and at the time, Rollo May was a huge figure in, in pastoral counseling and Christian Christian counseling, uh, he's probably the most well-known American existentialist. He's often confused for being a Christian, though he's more generally spiritualist and theistic. And he believed in God, but he believed there were many paths to God and different possibilities after we die. Um, and he acknowledges the tragic nature of the world that fills people with anxiety, but says that joy and freedom allow people to overcome difficult circumstances and create a sense of purpose. I'm a big Rollo May fan. Um, he's just one of these guys that you can, you can read and really wherever you are spiritually, intellectually, it, it just feels like it's speaking to you. So I want to read 
um, some some nice quotes, some nice bon mots almost from from Rollo May. It requires greater courage to preserve inner freedom, to move on in one's inward journey into new realms, and to stand defiantly for outer freedom. It's often easier to play the martyr as it is to be rash in battle. Joy, rather than happiness, is the goal of life. For joy is the emotion which companies, accompanies our fulfilling our natures as human beings. It is based on the experience of one's identity as being of worth and dignity. I picked that one because I'm, I'm a big fan of the concept of joy as distinct from happiness. Joy is, is actually deeper um, and more meaningful uh, than, than happiness. Here's another one. Life comes from physical survival, but the good life comes from what we care about. Another one. One does not become fully human painlessly. Amen. And ooh, this is a nice one. The opposite of courage in our society is not cowardice. It is conformity. Love it. Basic tenets of existential psychology. Again, things with which you should be familiar right now. Individual experience and existence is unique from that of other animals. Again, you've got this very phenomenological, uniquely human psychology. And this uniqueness is both inspiring and tragic because there will never be anyone else exactly like you. So you have to make the most out of, me, out of your life and make the most meaning out of it as possible. Human beings have free will, free choice. And this flies, again, this flies in the face of behaviorism and psychoanalysis. I really can't emphasize this enough. Um, behaviorism and psychoanalysis are both deterministic models. A lot of times there's this error made that, 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 that behaviorism is not deterministic. It's incredibly deterministic. Um, and so, of course, so is psychoanalysis. I, <laughs> I had a, um, a professor once, he was, a, he was an adjunct um, guest lecturer who was an analyst, and he was lecturing when I was at Fuller. Um, and the way he put it once is the unconscious is the only game in town. So it's, it's a very deterministic model. And finally, in existential psychology, as I've said a hundred times, each person is fully unique. So Kierkegaard May and Paul Tillich were more optimistic in the tradition of Viktor Frankl uh, in existential psychology. But there's certainly a darker version of existential philosophy um, you know, when, when you look at um, Nietzsche, when you look at Sartre, but existential psychology seems to really come more out of the more positive, um, hopeful, meaning-making aspects uh, of existential psychology. So now we turn to talking about moral development, and, and I'm sad that we're not in class um, for this because really the the fun of talking about moral development is having discussions and looking at different scenarios, that kind of thing. But along with humanism and existentialism comes this increased interest in moral development, and it's partly influenced by Piaget's discoveries about different cognitive stages, so psychologists begin to wonder if morality develops in a similar way, which would kind of stand to reason, right? So the famous Abraham Maslow was influenced by Gestalt psychology and that he thought it was important to look at the totality of an organism to understand the moral choices that, that he makes. And as a result, he comes up with his famous Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this should be familiar to all of you. So number one, basic physical needs. Number two, safety. Number three, love, and number four, self-actualization. Those, those might be good things to know, those, those four basic 
needs in Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, very few people reach stage four, the self-actualization stage, and when they do, they live on a different level than the rest of us, with most of their behavior motivated by altruism rather than, than selfishness. So now we move on to the famous, another famous theorist, Lawrence Kohlberg. And so he's working at Harvard and he builds on Piaget's work and he devotes his lifetime to the study of moral thinking in children and adults. He expands Piaget's storytelling techniques so that moral dilemmas can be adapted to different age groups and different cultures. And so he uses these stories as a kind of way to assess somebody's level of moral development. In each story, the listener has to judge whether the actions performed by the characters are right or wrong, why they are right or wrong, whether certain of the actions warrant punishment, and so forth. So just as an, an example uh, of this, and I'll, I'll see if I can find some videos that, that illustrate some of this. But again, this should be re basically review. But... The classic, you know, moral um, dilemma story is there's um, there's a man whose whose wife has a terminal illness. There's only one medication that she needs that 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 will save her. The pharmacist has the med a pharmacy has the medication, but the man doesn't have enough money to buy the medication. The medication is actually very very expensive. The pharmacist herself had to pay a lot of money for the medication and so then what do you do what does the man do what's the right thing for him to do does he steal the medication and save his wife's life does he follow the law not steal the medication um, and let his wife live that kind of thing and so the answer actually should indicate somebody's different level of moral development and the cool thing to do in a discussion it really won't work as well in, in this format but is to, to talk about you know different people's answers and the, the problems with the questions and that kind of thing. So they're sort of based on somebody's answer. So for, I'm sorry, let me give you an example right here. So a more concrete um, answer, an answer that, that a child of a certain age might give was that the person should not steal, break in and steal the medication uh, because it's wrong, because it's against the law. So there's a certain type of moral development that is very focused on rule following. Then you get into um, morality that could be more based on empathy or sympathy, where you say, well, of course he should steal the medication because you don't want his, his wife to die. And then that's the point where you can introduce all of these fun wrinkles to the story, like um, the pharmacist. If the pharmacist loses that medication, then she'll lose her business, and she's a single mom. And, you know, what, like, and so, and so it, it becomes more complicated. And, and so one of the, <laughs> the ideal sort of answers, I don't know if there's a best answer, um, but a, a good answer, a highly moral answer will ultimately say, well, there's, there's a problem with the system that needs to be changed and, and so forth. Now, in my previous lecture, I mentioned earlier than I should have, or before I talked about Kohlberg, I talked about Carol Gillian. And in her, her book, In a Different Voice, she compares men and women and their approaches to these Kohlberg dilemmas. And she concludes that women tend to be less analytical and more sympathetic, able to adjust judgments to meet the contextual demands of the situation. And it's such an important criticism, oh my gosh, because the, the dilemmas, the moral dilemmas in these situations, if you ever listen to them, they're incredibly unlikely. Um, to happen. They, they just don't happen. I, I agree with, I'm going to completely nerd out here, Captain Kirk 
in the Wrath of Khan, where he doesn't believe in a no-win scenario like that. Okay, just ignore that I said that. I'm not even going to make that an extra credit question because it was just so pathetically nerdy. Um, but yeah, the but Gilligan's point being that that these situations for women, the the right answer is often different, and frankly, because the right answer usually has to do with directly with relationships. And, and people instead of abstractions. And so it was a very important criticism. Um, just some interesting things about Lawrence Kohlberg himself. And, and this is a, a bit of a theme sometimes that you see, not all the time, but it comes up of somebody being, being very depressed. Kohlberg unfortunately committed suicide. Combination of personal tragedies and, and health problems and things like that just sort of overcame him. Um, and it's incredibly sad, especially because he obviously made an important contribution to the field of psychology. Let's talk about different types of morality. And again, I bet a lot of this is review. Utilitarianism is just what it sounds like. An act's moral value is assessed by the way in which the, the, the act affects the community. Um, its most basic form of utilitarian framework is, you know, according to which a good action is an act excuse me let me start over <laughs> utilitarian action is one that brings pleasure so you're going to do something in a way that it's best for not just best for you but best for everybody and that's really probably the most common form of morality and that's that's the one you'll see exercised the most across settings Deontology is an, an alternative to sort of the consequentialism of utilitarianism and Kant's categorical imperative is its, its first formulation, and it's sort of the quintessential deontological tenet. And it's a maxim that says, act in such a way that your action would be instituted as universal law. So again, we, we touched on Kant earlier, you do what's right because it's right, because of principle, not, not because of what the consequence will be. I submit to you that many people would say that they have a deontological morality when it's actually a mix of deontology and utilitarianism. But that's that's a rant for another time or maybe never. Um, sympathetic morality theories. These were more common in the 17th and 18th century. And basically, I argue the sentiments uh, toward particular actions are the determinants of the moral status of those actions. This isn't something we hear much uh, about anymore. It's sort of unique um, to, to this sort of romantic era. Um, but there, there's, there's a, an approach to morality that, that says how something makes us feel or rather makes somebody else feel should guide our actions. And so it's a morality that's based on sympathy, sympathy or one could even say empathy. Kohlberg thought that psychology should have a role in moral discourse because morality is a central part of the mental domain, which I agree completely. And this is a, a, a great foundation for psychology religion even. And, and this is really how Kohlberg makes his significant contribution. He, again, using Piaget's methods and, and approach to, as a stage theory, um, he was thinking about moral stages. So he'd tell a, the story of a child doing something, and then a child was asked to, to give her assessment as to whether the act was right or wrong. And so Piaget discovered that up to a certain age, children based moral evaluations on whether the person who committed the act was rewarded or punished. So it's a utilitarian moral, morality. Um, older children give more complex assessments. And so 
Piaget makes a distinction between heteronymous and autonomous moral reasoning. For Piaget, these are really the, the two types of morality. Heteronymous morality is basically there's an authority and there are rules and then there are consequences. So it's, it's and this occurs before, you know, for like five years to like nine years of age where rules are almost considered magical and like you can't break the rule and they come from this, this powerful authority, whether it's my parent, teacher, God, whatever. Around age 10, Piaget says that the brain sort of reorganizes in terms of morality and you start to develop your own morality. That's why it's called autonomous. And it's even though, despite the name, it's not a, it's actually not a selfish morality. It starts, it basically, uh, at this age, the kid can see, hmm, the rules and stuff, this is, these are man-made. They're not divine. They're not magical. And they're relative. So moral relativity is really the, the hallmark of the autonomous stage. And so someone can look at different situations and see if they think the rules uh, apply or not. Kohlberg goes beyond this to more of a stage theory saying that we actually can develop in more discrete stages um, and not everybody develops at the same rate or to the same level. So for Kohlberg, very young children do indeed make heteronymous moral judgments. But then as, as they get older, they will defer to authority figures to make moral judgments for them. And then as they get a little older, they're not completely autonomous yet because it, when, when they're looking at kind of the, the, the preteen and, and teen years sometimes, older children, um, children that age, excuse me, um, are going to make moral evaluations largely in relations to one's peer group. And this is something that research definitely bears out. And then the next stage, you've got some more sophisticated moral reasoning and moral judgments are constitutional in nature, meaning that they, they tend to appeal to the law uh, of the land. And so these things are, are seen as dispositive, meaning that's, that's kind of the final world, final, excuse me, final word. But then in Kohlberg's final stage of moral development, ethical maximums and principles guide moral evaluations. And you have truly autonomous moral reasoning that is more down to logical in nature, right? So again, Gilligan argues in response to Kohlberg that there are gender differences in moral reasoning. And this is something that I, would be a lot of fun to, to discuss with you as a class. Now we turn to cognitive psychology and in your notes, the title of this section is cognitive psychology colon the rebirth of a tradition. Now, what tradition am I talking about there? I don't say in the notes, so I need to tell you. I'm talking about the rebirth of rationalism, only now it's called cognitive psychology. And just as I've said before, when we're talking about cognitive psychology, remember, I'm not talking about CBT. I'm not talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm talking about cognitive, cognitive psychology which has much more to do with a concept of mind than, than it is a theoretical orientation of any kind. So in the early decades of psychology as a proper discipline named psychology, there's this push by Fechner, Wundt, and company to get rid of the idea of a mental life in favor of, of just behaviorism and, and structuralism. And there's this idea that mental processes actually inhibit uh, experimental psychology. 
Um, and when I talk more about Skinner um, in another lecture, and I'm later on, I'm going to post a video of Skinner's last keynote address, and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it was basically the whole theory of mind was sort of passe. Well, cognitive psychology revisits the mind as a construct, um, specifically as, as a, a cognitive processing unit. And remember, we're talking about history too. Guess what's happening at the same time that this idea of the brain as a cognitive processing unit comes up? If you guessed computers, you're right. Because between the 1950s and the 1970s, when all this is happening, when thinking comes back into focus, you've got your first computers and the scientific world is just is obsessed <laughs> with, with different ways to use them. And it, it becomes a huge metaphor, uh, if not the metaphor in, in cognitive psychology. George Miller is regarded as the 20th century father of cognitive psychology, again, not therapy. He regarded mental events as pure information processed at different levels, and behavior has to be understood as the outcome of this. Again, think about the computer metaphor. Um, the, the brain is, is the, the computer, and it gets data in, and then it outputs as behavior. And that's, that's really the, the key metaphor in cognitive psychology of, of this era. Miller discovers that the number seven has special significance for human beings because it's ha that's how many units we can memorize efficiently and consistently. Now, back in the day when we used to memorize people's phone numbers, um, this was very relevant because you would remember, and I'm sure people still remember phone numbers now and then nowadays, um, but you can, because we can easily remember seven digits and the area code is easy to remember because it's the same. Um, you know what I'm you know what I'm getting you know what a phone number is I don't have to explain it to you <laughs> sorry um, part of this cognitive psychology is based on these older concepts ancient concepts even of knowledge thinking and understanding so the Greek philosophers distinguished between and among three forms of thinking and understanding the Greeks thought there were three types of knowledge Epistone, epistone, episteme, phrenesis, and Sophia. Let me try that again. Episteme, phrenesis, and Sophia. So scientific kind of academic knowledge, that's episteme. Uh, I don't speak Greek, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. So, so for example, knowing that all triangles contain 180 degrees or that water, you know, turns to gas at a certain temperature, that's, those are all forms of episteme. Um, but someone with episteme not, might not be good at solving complex social problems, at leadership, that kind of thing. So uh, a form of practical reasoning is, that's phrenesis. Um, the, the highest form of wisdom is Sophia, and this is reserved for only truly exceptional teachers. So what does psychology have to say about all this? What does it, what does it have to do with knowledge, thinking, understanding, and learning? Um, problem solving is both practical and theoretical. So just to kind of frame this, if we're thinking in terms of sort of the old empiricism versus rationalism or, or behaviorism versus rationalism debate, this is actually a helpful way to think about it. When we problem solve, there's learning involved, of course, and there's, there's observable learning that, that occurs. 
Um, but people who are skilled at problem solving know how to reformulate problems and to make them ever more tractable, to make them constantly easier, in other words. So good problem solving thinking depends on finding what we call a heuristic, the right heuristic. That, name, that word is, is not as intimidating as it sounds. Uh, a heuristic is, is really, it's a problem-solving mechanism. It's the right device, right devote, right code, or some kind of converter for identifying the type of problem that you're dealing with and then coming up with the right solution. And so I'm going to give you some examples. This is going to be easier to, to swallow. A heuristic is a problem-solving aid. And the trick with it, though, is to maintain flexibility. So let, let me give you some examples of heuristics that we use, some that are more explicit, some that are more implicit. Uh, an, ex an explicit heuristic is um, the noun verb sequence in language. Um, you know, we when we're, we're speaking to someone, we just expect, okay, we're going to communicate by a noun verb combination. That is not always true, but it's generally true. And as with all heuristics, the trick is to remain flexible. Um, so I could, that's why when, you know, your roommate comes in, um, and goes food, you know, that they want to eat, even though they didn't use a verb in the sentence that that's kind of a, a silly example of that. Um, a more common kind of heuristic has to do a lot of times with visual assumptions that we make. Another way to think of heuristics is sort of kind of like the sort of mental shortcuts. Uh, sort of a, a catalog of mental shortcuts that we have. When I see somebody dressed in a grayish, bluish uniform carrying a bunch of mail, um, and they, they are coming up to the mailbox at my house, I assume that person works for the United State po States Postal Service. That's so an assumption that can be a type of heuristic. It, this might help you understand a little better. I don't look at that person and take time to assess based on the what I observe. Um, I've actually had very little data. You know, maybe even saw them just in my peripheral vision or something like this. But my brain necessarily went, oh, postal worker. That's an example of heuristic. Logarithms, algorithms, rather, um, are are a little more accurate. They're supposed to be more accurate. So they're devices that will always give the correct answer if there is a correct answer. Again, not as complicated as it sounds. Um, an English to French dictionary is an example of an algorithm. It's something that, you know, if, if I need to find an English word for something in French, it's going to give me the correct answer. Arithmetic is the most well-known algorithm. The idea, until you get to really, really advanced math that I don't even pretend to understand, but yeah, it's the rules of arithmetic. If you plug something into a quadratic, equa quadratic equation the right way, um, you'll get a consistent answer. So, but the trick, of course, is to determine whether or not the problem will fit with your algorithm, will fit with your, your heuristic. So you want to avoid something called functional fixedness. And this represents the problem of applying a problem-solving rule to an entirely unrelated context. And this often results from the availability of a heuristic, meaning we apply the heuristic most available to any situation regardless of the context. And unfortunately, prejudice and racism can be examples of functional fix fixedness. 
There are benign versions of functional fixedness, and we all use them. We're all functionally fixed in a couple of ways. Um, if you have ever said the sun's going down or coming up, you are using an old heuristic that does not accurately apply to the problem. Um, you're actually, actually expressing a, a Ptolemaic <laughs> view of the universe, of, of, of the earth anyway, even though you know better, even though you know that actually the sun is not rising or setting, that the, the earth is turning, but we still use that heuristic in our language. We all know what we mean. So it's there, not all functional fixedness is bad. Um, I actually, though, find functional fixedness as a helpful way to think about defense mechanisms because really, in, in psychoanalytic thinking, a defense mechanism is something that protects you from a threat at a particular time. It's a heuristic, right? It's, it's a, so if the problem can be that that heuristic doesn't work later on when it's applied to different problems. So, for example, if um, I grow up with a narcissistic or borderline parent, one of the things that, uh, heuristic that will protect me is to actually avoid intimacy and closeness with my parents because it will, it will result in some kind of pain, some kind of harm for me if I do with that parent. Fast forward to adult intimate, close relationships, then I might, and this is a really simplified example, but you know what I mean. I, I have this wariness um, about getting too close to people that's rooted in this old heuristic, but it's not working for me anymore. And so I just, that's, that's a helpful way for me to think about it that applies directly to, to psychotherapy. Your uh, textbook, the Sherev textbook, I believe, spends more time on artificial intelligence than I am going to, but it's, it's certainly worth mentioning in the, the history of psychology. Alan Turing, not a psychologist, he's more of a, a mathematician, uh, but he becomes famous by solving the infamous Nazi Enigma Code, and there's a movie about his life that is, it's, it's a good watch, and it's really informative, and it's, it's sad, and yeah, it's, it's a great film to, to check out. But his work is the basis for modern concepts of artificial intelligence. He, he basically invented um, a, a type of artificial intelligence to help solve the code much faster um, than, he, than he could have otherwise. And Turing believed that any problem that is solvable could be solved by machines. <laughs> and culture is going right along with him in that regard. Um, and he also thought that a computer would eventually simulate the human brain. And so again, we've got this, this metaphor, um, or in this case, an attempted simulation uh, of the human brain with a, a computer. So he was interested in, in decision-making processes, and he thought that you could mathematically demonstrate why people make seemingly subjective choices. So now we're kind of, we're back to this sort of determinism uh, again. So Turing has a very interesting life. If you're interested in artificial intelligence, um, also if you're just interested in um, what it was like to be a scientist and a homosexual and having to the, the kind of persecution and, and difficulty dealt with, it's it's his life is is very interesting. Sad, but but very interesting. You've probably heard of Noam Chomsky. And he offers a famous version of an innate language theory that very much refutes uh, behavioristic theory of language, which is all about reinforcement and learning, right? Um, Chomsky finds that reinforcement history is very culturally. 
And that, so in other words, how language is, is reinforced is different from culture to culture. Um, but the age at which children begin to form grammatically coherent sentences is pretty much the same the world over. Kids start talking at, at about the same age, regardless of culture, ethnicity, etc. Chomsky also argue, argues against behaviorism, and he, he says that parents don't reinforce grammar, but only the content. Uh, if it's a case that grammar isn't reinforced, then behaviorism can't explain why children formulate grammatically correct sentences. So, and, and this is very true. If you've got kids, you've been around kids at all that are, that are just learning to talk, people don't, <laughs> they're not worried about the grammar. They're not, hey, you needed a linking verb there, son. No, it's just that the content, usually, especially if it's directed at one of the parents and the word is mom or pop. Um, but... Grammar seems to, to evolve naturally. Language seems to be creative, and ideas can be expressed in a variety of different ways, all of which can be understood, even if never heard before. And so this doesn't match up with the behavioristic scenario, because these behaviors couldn't have been reinforced. And also, the age at which children can follow verbal instructions is far earlier than the age at which children can produce sentences. So what what what's going on there if it's operant conditioning um, that that probably couldn't be the case on the rare occasions that children have been reared in a linguistically deprived environment these these kids are known as feral children or they used to be known as feral children we don't call them that anymore um, these children may never learn a language if language training isn't begun soon enough. The, the thinking is generally that there's, there's a window where language needs to be learned in terms of cognitive development. And if you don't learn within that window, then language acquisition is not impossible and it's, it's not completely abs absent, but it's much more difficult. So the behaviorists would argue that any form of learning is just cumulative. We, can, we just start learning at a certain time and then it just... It, all adds up and becomes increasingly complex. The fact that we can really only acquire and become proficient at knowledge at a certain age really is, is a mark in the, the cognitive psychology column. It says that there are things that happen purely in terms of brain development that have nothing to do with, with empirical observational behavioral learning. So there's this sensitive period where we can acquire language, and once that, that period is over, then it's much more difficult. All of this suggests that language is best understood as a kind of internal process, not as a function of reinforcement history. And on Chomsky's account, the innateness of language is given by the structural, functional makeup of the human organism. I'm going to leave you with a song by Queen. It was just a matter of time, right? It's a song called All God's People, and Freddie Mercury recorded the final vocals just a few weeks before his death. He actually recorded this and a bunch of other vocals knowing that he would not be alive to see the song released, and the band finished it after his death. And he said just as long as he, he could sing, he wanted the, the band to just keep giving him lyrics and keep giving him music, and he wanted to sing until he was too weak uh, to sing anymore, and that's exactly what he did. The lyrics of the song, All God's People, contain messages of faith, joy, community, certainly things that fit with humanism, but things that also fit very nicely with the gospel of Christ and the joy of the Lord. So this is All God's People by Queen, and thank you, as always, for your kind attention. So are you people, give
Yeah.